You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, there we go. That's yeah, I, I felt like the whole podcast was interesting, and it's just like one more piece. Every single time we talk to these researchers, it's just like we get confirmation on things that we already thought or conversations we've already had, but it also just makes it go, okay, well, that makes sense. And and it just is it's frustrating to me how, you know, it's 2021, and we're getting – now the, the research that's coming out is just, like, confirming all this stuff that that many of us have been preaching for several years about. This is the way we need to manage land. But yet it still feels like new information to yeah. people. And when we share it or they share it or we share it together in different audiences or different seminars or whatever, it's like people are hearing it for the first time and it's thinking, how does this happen? How, are, how, have, we, how have we reached this point? And, and, and I think much of that is uh, f- to our fault, to others' fault of when uh, the, the, the ear, the people's ear was held by people who didn't follow the research. Correct. And by that I mean that the, the people who were getting the information to the the land owners were sharing stuff that wasn't research based. It was it was opinion based, pro, pro, opinion based or product based, or um, they just didn't know any better. Ignorance was the is, yeah. was the thing. Yeah. Um, and now I feel like the researchers are keying in on doing research that is now being more directly applying to landowners. It can be directly applied to private landowners, public landowners. The problem is, in my opinion, um, that much of the the people have almost shut off some of the researchers because it's too. they feel like it's too over the head a lot. Like the, the, the delivery of the research is either too in-depth or they're already just feel like they're sitting in a classroom and they hated it anyway like me <laughs> i think i think everyone wants to to have a short answer yeah, of how absolutely. Do, how does what does this mean um 
I, I appreciate all the hard work that went into the research, but at the end of the day, give me give me the Cliff Notes version, essentially. I think it's right. a little bit why there could be a disconnect there, but but I think this is you know, it takes all kinds. It takes it takes people to be devoted to good science, figuring out, finding good science and learning this stuff. But then it takes other individuals to be able to communicate it well and, and apply it. Absolutely. To and I feel like life. you know, when we there's a lot of research that we follow, a lot of researchers out there, professors that are doing incredible research. And I feel like what we do well is take their information, not because they can't do it, but <laughs> they may not want to break it down and deliver it and come back with all the questions of like, oh, here's the information, just take it or leave it. Or, right, right, right. That's where I feel like like one of the guys, and I, maybe he won't mind me saying this but i feel like when i talk to him about it it's just like here's the information just take it this yeah. is the the truth and and you may not want all the follow back in those questions that's dr craig harper every yeah. time we talk to him about stuff like if we start going in depth and asking it's just like there's the information man yeah just take yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you know it's, all of it all of it comes back and and stems from we want to make the be- the best of biggest impact and and here are um, all the things that we can do and that's why I like the collaboration um, and working with these mm-hmm. skilled professors and their graduate students to figure out man here's the latest in the science yeah and and so if we take the latest in the science and apply it to all the other knowledge that we've learned we're then ahead ahead of the game <coughs> or exactly. we can or we can make some changes or tweaks it i'm not gonna say any of this is like crazy earth shattering changes it's it's expected but it's good to have that confirmation and i think that for everyone listening it's good for you guys to hear that reiteration of no what you're seeing what you've observed and maybe what you've thought or maybe what you've heard us you know speculate is is confirmed through this research and so mm-hmm. that may that means yep. that we need to take that intensity yep. of management farther we need to take it to a to another level um and continue to again diversify and if anyone hasn't picked up already we're what we're going to do in this podcast is basically just go uh, back through and reiterate um i think you use the term unpack all that great information that Dr. Marcus Lashley was talking about. Yeah, exactly. And, and covered in the podcast because there's exactly. there's a lot there. But um, what we don't want to do is is skip over all that good information and and really tell you guys exactly how it applies to you and your farm. That's right. I th- we should have done this in the past when we had others on. Um, Will Goolsby and and. Uh, some of the some of the guys at uh, biologist at QDMA and when we had Mike Chamberlain Mike and Cham- Brett yeah. Collier on. Yep. Um, now I was thinking about that the other day. It's like there's there's certain professors researchers that I really like. They're like to me like I I follow them and in their work and and the latest research that they're doing and then see if what they're doing applies to me or can apply to me. Sure. And uh, or apply to our clients in this region yeah. or whatever yeah. for like. I mean, when it comes to turkeys, Mike Chamberlain, Brett Collier, when it comes to deer, um, you know, there's there's several people, Craig Harper, 
uh, Bronson Strickland, Bronson Strickland, even Kip Adams when mm -hmm. his uh, some mm -hmm. of the stuff they've done or supported in research. Um, Pennsylvania, I'm not sure the professor up there, but Dr. Penn Allen, State. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's a long, it's, unique name. Yeah, and uh, props to you, whoever you are. Yeah, <laughs> and, and of course Marcus Lashley, Bronson Strickland, Steve Damaris. Um, who else have we had? Will Craig Goldsby, Harper. Craig Harper, yep. all those guys. That's kind of in a nutshell, and I'm sure there's others, and it's, and it's other certainly in the, in the future we're going to have on that may not be wildlife-specific. But, um, yeah, that, for us, that's kind of a, a good rundown of some of the latest, the people that we like to follow. Um, when it came to this, this topic, it was like there's nothing really – I mean, there is earth-shattering stuff here, but the biggest thing is when we're interviewing – a professor, researcher, and they're giving us the – we're just trying to get the information. And then it's like we we need to take the time to then take that information through our questions and their research, and then how does this apply? Mm -hmm. How does this – me as a landowner, if my place is upland forest, how does this apply? If my place is swamp bottom ground, how does this apply? What can I do with this information? It's like many times – I find myself buying a new whatever it may be, like mm -hmm. a, a pressure washer. That was something I had in the past month. Bought a pressure washer. Not a bad, not not a phenomenal time to buy a pressure washer, but yeah. on sale. So there you go. Sure. And I remember I was putting it together. It was just like, I don't care. Just tell me where this piece goes. Yeah. And that's Wait, where you I got irritated at direction. Yes, it's like it, it's telling <laughs> I can't me like that. <laughs> it, just tell me where it goes. Yeah, and because I have to read through five pages of warnings, and, and you don't want to know more than what you need to know because it's a pressure washer. I just want to. I just want to use it. Yeah, and I think that's another part of where a lot of <laughs> landowners fall into um, is listen. I'm a professional in another field, and I want to know this for my sake and yeah. I don't need to know anything more just break it down boil it down tell me what I need to know and I'm moving on and I'll apply, and I'll apply it I'll do it mm -hmm. but just don't give me all the other stuff yeah it's like with a chainsaw Get to how the, often should I sharpen it yeah. how often should I change well, when the it gets filter dull. yeah <laughs> how often should I what, store it with fuel how much fuel yeah. what should I do to winterize it and how long can I let my fuel sit without being utilized what kind of what <laughs> kind of mix yep and what kind of bar ratio oil. and that's it yeah. like and it's just like don't don't give me all the fluff yep and i feel like that's where this research sometimes we can get lost in the weeds because it sounds great and it's awesome information but how does that apply to me for example um i mean we are coming up in trapping season and it seems like we're you know, getting questions. I've had some guys hit me up about what traps to buy and different things. And it's like, there's all kinds of research on trapping, but it's like, what? how does that apply to me? Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but many of it doesn't because a lot of the research is not achievable for you, Scalable. private landowner. Yeah. When they're trapping almost year-round on thousands and thousands of acres and they're targeting all these species, it does not apply to you. Don't think that it does. Right, right. And, uh, I mean... There's so much research out there. You have to that. you have to figure out which ones you can replicate, which ones for you, and yeah. which one um, which ones you can say hmm, interesting and move on, yep. and don't apply it because it's it's not applicable. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, that's what this week's so unpacking. Let's, is. let's unpack it. Let's go into uh, essentially the the first 
study that um, he talked about that Mariah had conducted and what what does that mean? Basically, when they collected the 75,000 acorns and placed them under the trees and looked for preference in a year that had low mass production, here was an abundance of, of mass not being consumed. Yeah. Like as soon it was as soon as it was available. Um what does that tell us? What does that mean for those what managing did you take those away? Species? What was the biggest thing that you took away? Like if I were to ask you what are two main points that in that conversation that you were like that comes to mind. <clears throat> Honestly it didn't have anything to do with oaks. It had everything to do with deer and okay. foraging. So so basically what what my some of my t- takeaways was I just I didn't really care about the species under the umbrella <laughs> of red and under the umbrella of white oaks, right? Yeah. So okay, let's just get that down. But then here's this abundance of food that we know deer are going to eat. They mm-hmm. eat red oak acorns across the country. Where they're available, they eat them. Yep. But the deer intentionally avoided or left, saved, I'm air quoting that because they don't have the capacity to to think that necessarily, but they didn't utilize that forage base, although it was present, until it was necessary. It's Uh like their body is... uh, in such close, let's say, sinking with the land and the climate, the region that they're in, mm-hmm. that they knew that that resource was going to be better utilized later in the winter when other food sources weren't going to be. Yeah, That's what I took from that. These deer are foraging <laughs> on something, obviously outside of the mass production, because they're not eating it right now. I and, felt, and so yep. they're going to come to it later on. And I think that was the the biggest takeaway is, I think sometimes we're just trying to hunt, well, there's... Look at all these acorns. They're on the ground. Yeah. Well, maybe they're going to come in there, or maybe they're going to wait. I mean, the the viability of a food source from a red oak is when it drops in October, November time frame, even December, <coughs> and, and it's viable all the way till spring. Yeah. That's an amazing food source. And yeah. I think that, I guess one other takeaway is, okay, that's the foraging behavior and habits of, of deer. Um, that's cool. But the yeah. other one is the implication, I think, that, um, or the love that needs to be shown towards red oaks mm. over a white oak. That, well, that was kind of my the my main point that I took away was that, that's something we had talked about I almost a hate, lot beforehand. Exactly, but I but almost still. we talked about what what for you guys that don't know or didn't understand exactly what Matt and I were talking about. There was the biggest takeaway for me <clears throat> was how often you hear people say white oaks are their favorite. Yeah. There, there's so much about that statement that's wrong and yeah. incorrect because that what well hold on what hold is on. true in that is that whose favorite the deer the deer's favorite? favorite okay okay the deer's right. favorite all right why deer like white oaks better and it is like that's the statement do they like them better as a whole or do they like them better right now and do they like them better right now and by that I mean early early October yep. Let's just say, you know, when generally when most white oaks are falling, deer are eating them. So early October, I think late September, early October, something along those lines, mid-October. And you can say, deer like them best now. And by that, I mean during that time frame, late September, early October. 
or do they like them best right now because they know that late November they won't be available? Well, so they know they have to eat them right now because they're going to be spoiled in no time. In, in, in a matter of weeks, days. I don't think we're ever we, – we can't dissect that. Well, well I think that – we just have to look at the foraging behavior and the characteristic of that uh, forage itself. It's not, it's not going to be good in a month and a half. So, deer know that they. Yeah. I'm sure they've eaten a mealy, rotten, wormy, hold, moist acorn or, or one anyway. that's been sprouted. And they're like, "Good night." That's horrible. Yeah. But they they knew what it was when it dropped, yeah. and they're like, "Well, it's way better then." So I'm not going to like. That's just learned behavior, or they or they sense it. Like you know, a lot yeah, of times you can sure. watch a deer forage on on or blackberry, smell. and they're going to select certain leaves over others. Sure, and I feel like that's probably what they do with with acorns is they can select. Oh, that one's something's yeah. off on that one. I'm going to eat this one, and they can realize that if if we let these lay on the ground very long, I mean, we've said it before in the past of like, hey, you know. This October has been a very wet <coughs> October and very warm. White oak acorns are sprouting mm-hmm. a lot earlier mm-hmm. this year than they do in the past. So, yep. therefore, I know that white oaks are spoiled. We're that, waiting that on red oaks done. To, to rain more. Yes. And what I noticed, and in, in I'll, I'll paint a very broad brush, but red oaks drop later. Like, yep. I, And I say that because like, I can think of a couple of cameras, trail cameras we have on food plot edges where uh, I think of the, the north bottom – um, there's a red oak right along the fence that drops a little later, and it's just like now. I mean, right. November, December is when they're eating those acorns. Mm-hmm. Um, or one here in my in my subdivision where my daughter and I walk, and every time we get by it, she asks to pick up an acorn. Yep. And it's always like last year it was around Christmas that we were picking them up because mm-hmm. they just held so long. Right, right. And but white oaks they're done for. You don't see a white oak holding on late into the fall. <laughs> to and, to me, it's it's <clears throat> it's like a feast or famine mode from a white oak standpoint. It's yeah. like you either got them or you don't. And when you do have them, you better feast them because. They're going to be gone, and they're yeah. not going to last long. And to me, from a from a an implication of a forage itself, and from a a potential space that a tree, a large mass producing white oak tree, can take up and hold on a property. I mean, I'm 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 envisioning Elam Ridge right now, right? We got 35 acres, <laughs> only yep. so much is timber, and and I don't want necessarily the majority of the trees to be white oak species that is its own its place is to shine for three weeks out of an entire year every couple years that's not good luckily that's not the case i don't have a ton of white oaks i have three times the amount of of northern red oaks and black oaks on the place Mm -hmm. and i'm saying there from a mixture standpoint if i have timber that's that's what I want because yes, is that food source good? Can I can I focus in on it when it's available? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. There's there's a dozen trees, but well, too, I think you could consider the slope of your farm and why you <laughs> have no more red oak family species than you have white oaks. Like if you were getting if you were a landowner in the Ozarks, like in between our farms, and you had a farm that was mainly south facing slope, you'd probably want more white oaks because uh-huh. you'd want something that could handle the fire a little better than the red oak family. And so once again, I mean you can always find glass half full for sure. when you look around and say, Okay, well, there's a reason, you know. Uh but yeah, for your farm, the red oaks, that 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 should be th- 
That's why we say pin us in a corner, and we're probably going to say we like Red Oaks better. Yeah, I, I just, I'm just going to <clears throat> basically straight boiling all the fluff away. Yeah. Here, here's the takeaway. The food source is available longer. Yep. So if I can supplement, whether it's food plot or I can supplement with woody brows, I know through the more stressful time of the year, a winter stress period in this region, mm-hmm. I have more food available on good mass production years. Yep. That's what I want. That's what I care more about than than a food availability in late September, October. Exactly. Like yes. it's it's not we're we're comparing apples and oranges when we're talking about time frames and what the the foraging behaviors are and what the what the actual let's say requirements dietary requirements are for that deer. It, it, and and so if you're thinking about a stressful period of time, let's <sighs> just say January to March, and you know white oaks are spoiled for the most part at that point. Um, most of the food plots or cover crops have been hammered pretty good. Mm-hmm. Food is pretty sparse, so if you don't have a red oak base. And Ooh. a woody browse base. What you got? What are they going to eat? Well, I, I think I think of a lot of um, and the what a lot of places that don't have woody <clears throat> browse available. Yeah, and let's say post rut, the rut was great, but then the farm is just dead. I mean, yeah. just dead. If it's closed canopy, um, even if there are red oaks in there, maybe it's just unproductive trees because it's overstocked, and and so the forage base is limited during that time of the year. That farm is just dead. Deer move off. They find the food. They find the the resources that are available, and that's going to be a farm that's got a better balance uh, of woody brows and a red oak base mass crop. Yeah, and I I think of like, you know, how does this apply to me? What what <coughs> what about this applies to me? And um, we talked about this with him. I think we talked to him about pollination. You asked him about that, right? That was after. That was after. Okay. Yep. And so we were talking about pollination and going back to some of the research Dr. Craig Harper did where it was yep. fertilizing trees for 10 years versus thinning around and releasing these oaks in, yep. in this 10-year study. And then it was vastly more productive to 25, thin. 25% more mass mm. increase, I think it was. And, and zero increase with fertilizing. Right. right. And so it was like, okay. How does this apply to me then in regards to if this is this is where we're drawing lines and we're going to make assumptions. <coughs> if if that is true cuz I think it was white wasn't it white oaks that they focused on in yes, that study? Yes, in that study. Okay. Let's just say it's true for red Strapulated oaks as well. it over for red oaks. Okay. And we say okay, my north slopes and east slopes and lower lower sites where red oaks are abundant, black and northern mm-hmm. reds cuz that's mainly what we have here. Yep. Um Let's do some thinning around them. So let's thin the hackberries, the elms, the sycamores, the overstocked red oaks, the yep. overstocked black oaks, the unhealthy-looking ones yep. and that don't have great crowns that are mid-canopy that are trying to grow out from under it. Let's thin that and make those trees more productive. Yep. But then... Because they're more productive, they're they're producing more acorns. There's also more sunlight coming down, so we have more herbaceous plant, more oak regeneration, and but, and, and you all probably sudden, turned those <clears throat> trees that you did cut down into woody browse opportunities. Yep. So so there's a another great forage base and cover so I've got base. Forage there. from the woody from the trees I cut down. 
I've got sunlight hitting the ground, so now I have summer forage with herbaceous plants. I have more sunlight, so I have some grasses for good cover. Brambles. But then I have the trees that I left producing more hard mass. So now I've got that added through the winter f- period. And just like that, I've taken that research and I've gone, okay, this applies directly to me. This is how I use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not to say that because I'm doing this work in these red oaks that now I've got a, a, a phenomenal hunting spot because it's going to be dropping acorns in November and they're going to be in there. They may be on certain years or certain trees because of the species, but ultimately I'm just helping lower that stress period during that late winter, early spring. And that's well, that's what I think so, some of the uh, the people get, I don't want to fr- say frustrated with like research is, Guys, not everything that research is going to show is going to improve a hunting strategy. No, I think it's I think it's foolish to sit here and 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 expect that everything that we do is going to improve an overall hunting strategy. This is not going to necessarily make you kill a big buck. It could help, but it's not. It, that's not the point of it. The point of it is to be the best land manager. And at the end of the day, if you're the best land manager, you're you have the best and healthiest specimens to chase. And you can hunt them however you choose to. I don't care if it's spot and stalk. I don't care if it's yeah. from a tree stand or a tree saddle. <clears throat> because there's they more have p- to be there first yeah. to hunt them. Yeah. So and so then, stop trying to the, think of it just as a strategy. And thing. then if you pack in a, you find in that TSI, you find a spot. That, <clears throat> you know what? There's really this little acre here. There's really nothing of any value. Clear cut it. Cut the whole thing down. Now you got a bedding area. Now hunt the downwind side of that, depending on if it's close to a, a, an uh, access. There's baby number one awake. Hey, um, girl. Staring out the window, <laughs> smiling from ear to ear. Um, and so, you know, that was the one of the big takeaways for me was, was the over uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? The Analyzing? almost like – no, I was going to say the, the the pedestal that we put white oaks on. Now, I love white oaks. Like, I, 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 I can't say that I, I don't – I, that I don't like. Them. I'm not here to I, crush them. I'm just here to balance the scale back out and yeah. show the fact that there is way more importance of a red oak species than than previously given or previously thought from a lot of folks in a, in the hunting community. That's right. Yeah. When it comes to like people planting white oaks, whatever, I mean, you know, don't don't hate on red oaks. Don't don't not show love to red oaks because yep. red oaks are ultimately. <laughs> probably for a lot of guys a bigger influence on the deer herd than your white oaks are the only reason we think white oaks are doing it is because it's more compacted into a two three week period and all the deer are going crazy over it It, and and you think that oh the deer love that more well maybe they love it just because they don't last as long well and a lot i think i think a lot more people hunt during that time frame as seasons open during archery than they do in december when they're pounding red oaks yeah and, I, and I, we've specifically killed a deer in December, hunting over black oaks uh, on a specific ridge. It's like, well, that's they're dropping now. That's the food source. Yep, there you go. And but and, you know, it's a lonely hunt to hunt acorns in December and January. <laughs> yes, sir, it is. It is cold. <laughs> it can be cold, and it can be widespread. Widespread, like just, because much of the Ozarks for us, what we hunt a lot is 
big very big timber. And so between here, there, and over the ridge, there's red oaks scattered <laughs> amongst it. So it's hard to key in on those but, like it is with white oaks. But if you have known bedding areas on the south-facing slopes, you find the shortest point from A to B, and now we could start changing that game with that's right. that more habitat management. But, yeah, that, 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 that's, my, that's my big takeaway, too. You know, the, the second study I thought was, was really good when they discussed uh, the different species. Yeah. Um, but what was just interesting, a, a I think. different species all in the red oak family it, because it, white oaks <coughs> did not store in the uh, fridge. Yeah. But, they they but were sprouting. When, when they used the fire to char mm. and burn mm-hmm. the leaves and it altered the forage base. And, and t- this is just yeah. me. I'm <coughs> speculating here, but I think that he would say agreed with it. Yeah. It, it, it made that acorn less viable for a longer period of time. So they they hammered it. They got it quick. Yeah. Forged when it was available, just like they do with the white oak. So so if that's the whole purpose or what was shown in that study, the second study, well then with a red oak in certain locations, we can burn at different times and simulate that intensity that is seen in and around <clears throat> white oaks when they drop, how they drop because it's a short viable yep. time frame but we can do the same thing in a known given area talk about burning let, doing that around me, a 50 l- yard stand let me play devil's advocate in here no not welcome <laughs> <laughs> with with that discussion and i thought about this later after we've had a few you know we, we just went through thanksgiving we recorded two days before thanksgiving something like that yeah and now we're a couple days removed um <clears throat> the thing about it to me that, that when I think about that and playing devil's advocate is like, I don't know that I would necessarily want to burn a 200-acre unit or oh, a 100-acre unit because I could ultimately then cause all those acorns on that ridge to spoil if, uh, if totally. the deer couldn't consume Well, that's why I was like, so a 50 yards. fall spot. burning, uh, that's where the the bow range burning that they uh, – that I think they They did, did that late summer. Was, Okay, yes. That was late summer, like right to ahead get the, of. To get the sprouting. forage. Right, exactly. More broadleaf, more, more re-sprouts yeah. from that standpoint. But but why can't, as acorns are dropping in um, late October, November time frame, why can't we take that bow range burning, apply that same science, change the chemistry of the acorn, the mass production, and and, and basically <clears throat> replicate that intense foraging in that area in a very set location, you yeah. know, again, this where you're hunting at. Don't do. Yeah. I would not do that in a 200 acre unit and no. think think I'm, think that I'm doing benefit from a mass production. And that standpoint. and that's where more is not always best. Absolutely, because you're like, oh well, I'm going to burn and make this whole hillside attractive. Yeah, well, yeah. you're ultimately yeah. going to lose some acorns because, and yeah. then this whole hillside is going to be barren. Barren after that point. Yeah, not yeah. good. And that's why I think, okay, if you do that in conjunction, you know, there's a lot of great research that they've done at Mississippi State and <coughs> now that that he's doing at Florida University mm-hmm. or University of Florida. Excuse me for Be you Be careful down because there. there's a bunch of different it's, colleges down like, there. <laughs> well, it's just like Texas University or Texas University Tech. of Texas. Yeah, oh, yeah. You, you cannot say it wrong, and I said it wrong just in that I don't know which one I said bad right, because right. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> Some I'm not school into out of it, Texas. <laughs> but his work down at University of Florida yeah, or Florida University. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. So anyway. I don't even know what you said. If you combine that, like, 
I, I think about it. It's bow range burning. Okay, we're burning, and we're going to attract these. I don't think it would work, or maybe it wouldn't be as attractive with white oaks because they're already attractive enough. I don't think you need so to change if that If your game, stand yeah. is set up in a grove of white oaks, I don't see the point. But right. if your stand is set up with red oaks around it, maybe now we can make that very attractive. validity here. Yeah, and I'm not just going to you know, prioritize and understanding the research to then how can you apply it. Don't waste your time doing it on white oak grove because they're already attractive. And don't do large swaths. And don't do large swaths. Go small scale. Don't don't hear that research and be going, oh, I'm not going to burn in the fall. Be- because because <coughs> doing a little 50-yard burn around your stand is simple. That takes literally 20 minutes in the backpack And don't blower. be concerned about the, the pressure. I, I think so many times people get too concerned about the pressure or the disturbance. Well, if you're attracting oh, if you're attracting deer to the area because of that disturbance, do it. Well, here's here's a little bit of a side because I'm a hundred percent agreeing on that. We know, and I had a conversation with a gentleman yesterday um, on, on a piece of property in Kansas, showing him, and he hunts western Kansas. So yeah. we're talking grass, CRP, a ditch, but like a ditch with a hackberry and a cedar, a hackberry and a cedar, right? Yeah. So like. When they're hunting this 700-acre parcel, they see the whole thing. So, yeah. so essentially, what what the conversation went was, he goes, he goes, Matt, I gotta be honest with you, I I don't feel that um, a lot of people are right when they try and discuss the 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 pressure that we put on whitetails. Yeah. He goes, I, I've bumped deer, we spot and stalk a lot out there, and he goes, I will find individual bucks, and they're chasing a very specific one right now. He like. I'll find them 80% of the time. And I've bumped them before. And guess what? I go back to the same place, and he's probably better 40 yards away from where he was bumped. Yeah. Now, granted, it's a grassland, and, and there's a lot of cover out there. Yeah. But that deer had been spooked, and everyone everywhere else wants to think, well, that deer's gone. He's off the out of the, co- the county, or he's on the neighbor. I bumped him. This just changes the game. The home site Fidelio, that deer knows that that's his home. That's where he's best suited to be at. That's what he knows the absolute best. Yeah. And, I mean, they're talking <clears throat> days and years. Yeah. They go back to the same spot, boom, deer stands up. Like, yeah. That's that right there, that thicket, that one plum thicket or that one deal, that 40-yard patch, that is where he's going to be at. The deer stands up after yeah. being bumped several several days in a row. China had this conversation where – it, I just it, think it, we we play into into pressure, pressure way too much. I, I think we too. give too much credit to the animal. I, I think that mature deer are are wiser than young ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's easy, but not to too see. mature, right? Not senile, mature. Yeah, n- yeah, yeah, exactly. There's but, that middle ground. But what I, I think it's at the end of the day, the deer just simply find the places that we're just not routinely bumping them. And that's where they're at all the time. Yeah. We're very patternable in what we do and mm-hmm. how we access a property. You're going to take the same road every time. Like, yeah. I'm going to take the same trail. Like, And, and I think deer learn that pretty quickly. Very quickly. Um, Chad, I had that, you know, take it from a grassland and go into timber. And I feel like a lot of times people think that when you hunt big timber that because you go into a stand and there's deer sign and you hunt it and then – it's like they stop working those scrapes. They stop that yeah, that yeah, you yeah, put yeah. the pressure on, and they're no longer there. No. And how many times do you watch? Like Chet and I now have been blessed enough that to, to to get to hunt our family farm and the 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 woodlands 
now that we've that we've got to lease for so many years, like, and we've been able to run cameras on the whole place for so long that we can watch a deer be very active in one site, yeah. and then leave it completely and spend two weeks, yep. two ridges over, and sp- and be there for two weeks, and all of a sudden Shift. come back, yep. and and we not even have hunted it. Or, or check the cameras now with the right. Cuddy Link system, where it's just like we're just watching them just pack Doing their suitcase and move two two ridges over and never come up to that camera for two weeks. And you never applied pressure to that area. No, no pressure. Just whatsoever. random deer that you weren't chasing. And, and we see it a lot yeah. with like a, a doe group, where it's like food plot, food plot, food plot, boom, gone, and they're well, over on another one. Right, but but think about that for a second, because what have we just been talking about? How fragile and time-sensitive forages, forages are. Exactly. And and when things shift and things change, or when this red oak starts dropping, and there's th- and they've depleted the white oaks in the forest, yeah. or they've spoiled, well, of course that's going to shift. But if yeah. you're not in tune and you're not in sync with all that, <clears> and all you're doing is looking at cameras, you're going to think that spot's dead. And, and it could be, but yeah. it's not because of the pressure that you put on it, because you hunted it the one time. And it could be a persimmon started dropping up there yeah. or whatever other soft mass may be up right. there. Um, and I think you don't think that that four-year-old doe doesn't know where the best food source is oh, in that 400 knows. acres. So, she of knows. course, she's going to pack her bags. And she knows where you're at yeah. a lot yeah. or where so, you're going to be at. The so most it's like, frequent well, places I, I can encounter pop you. over there and, and I'm going to spend a week around that persimmon tree until that food source is gone. Yep. And then I know that that red oak over there... Over there is going to be prime, and yep. I'm going to go spend a week or two over there. It's kind of like when you got you got a bunch of old cows mm-hmm. in a field, and then you bring in new cows. Those old cows, they know where the water is, and they're yep. teaching all the young. Like That's exactly what happens every single year, every single fall, every single spring. Um, these shift in patterns and where forage is and where it's not at, these fawns are learning that, and they're yep. taking that same behavior that they were taught um, – or they just reacted to because they're following mama wherever she goes. They're doing the same stuff. Yeah. Same the same exact stuff. Yeah. I, I, I felt like that whole fire and 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 the preference when you could almost line it up in as far as preference. Let's just skip the part I said on fire, but the preference of mm-hmm. eight different species. And you could almost give like just for each species give them two weeks. And you look at and you just like, okay, this species Species A gets October, the first two weeks of October. This species gets the last two weeks of October. This species gets first two weeks of November. This species gets the first, the last two weeks of November. Yeah. And then, you know, a couple others fall in there in the middle. And, and it's just like, wow, you can see the importance of diversity. And yeah, that's yeah. just the red oaks. That's well, not well, white oak, bur oak, totally. chinkapin oak. But, but on top of that, on top of that, we also, in the first study, just just found out that even though they drop at those that two week period, typically, yeah, they may not hit that until January fifteenth, yeah, B- based on all the other forage that you might be supplementing, or you may not be supplementing if if your farm's not productive during that time of the year. But but it just goes to show that dropping doesn't mean everything, and having this understanding <clears> of, <throat> I think, tonnage and forage. As a landowner, ask yourself, when does your food dry up? Yeah. Like, w- do you know when things get limited? Do you know what deer foraging on in January when you're not really watching your cameras anymore? Like, yeah. do you know what's happening out there? Because they certainly do. Yeah. 
and, and, and they're really in tune with it, or they've completely just left the place because you haven't addressed that window and that yeah. time frame um, from a foraging standpoint. So it was all very, very fascinating. But um, it just it, to me, we talked about this pre-show on this podcast, but you know, as I'm <clears throat> going through and doing TSI on um, Elam Ridge, it, I went back and looked at like a historical image of the place. It was very different from what it looks like now. Like very few trees, very scattered. And that was back to the 1950? 50, 55. 1955. And as <clears throat> I'm cutting in there, it's very apparent to see that, om- that aerial image yeah. come to life as you're on the ground with the chainsaw in your hand because you're like oh, there, there's a bigger tree there's a there's a probably you'd consider that a wolf tree but uh, everything in between it <coughs> seems to be relatively junky yeah. there's a lot of persimmon I mean, mixed when, in when you go to that historical image 35 acres less than 100 trees Right around less than yeah. 200 trees? Oh, yeah. And yeah. now you've got over a thousand? Thousands. Thousands. So pretty drastic. drastic. And I think the first thing I told you when you sent it over, I said, whoa, and we wonder where the quail went. Uh, like, yeah. like you, you, you look at that place, you're like, that had quail. Yeah. That had yeah. quail. That, that's, yeah. what, that's what you would want to have seen as a and, bird hunter. And, and what happened? Well, the open space got turned into monoculture fescue. Yeah, yep. And the timber grew up yep. to be too thick for a quail. And, and we yeah. scratch our heads and we blame it on predators or whatever, but it's like the landscape has changed so much. How changed many insects does a fescue attract versus native prairie? Native. Uh, yeah. Thousands Weeds. different. Yeah. Um, how how many uh, <coughs> how many herbaceous native plants could grow in the timber, which yep. really wasn't timber; it was more savanna woodland like. Yep. Yep. So pretty drastic. Very very. And so drastic. when you're running that chainsaw, you're running into young oaks and. Some young oaks, a lo- lot of uh, elms, a lot of cedar. Honestly, yeah. there's a lot of cedar in there. Yeah. Um, and dogwood species, persimmon, some cherry mixed in. Yeah. Um, but but generally, in the, some post oak, but white, black, and red, black in, in the, and in uh, the northern Ozarks, red. It's pretty pretty common to find what was and once mulberries too. Mulberry. Yeah. W- well, w- once again, I, and I'll say it. Uh, it's pretty common in the Ozarks to find what used to be open. To be now heavy in elm, yep. cherry, and mulberry, these soft mass fruit. Like I'm looking right here, they're, Matt. They're pollinating, pioneering right tree species. I was looking right here, and I was like, man, what? What are all the birds? Like, what are they? Po- mm-hmm. What seed is that? Yep. Oh, wait a second. Yep. Hackberry. Exactly. Right there. Right there. Mm-hmm. And it's like there was there was I don't know dozens just right here on the fire pit <coughs> or on the on our fire pit. Well, here's like, taking that another step farther. <coughs> it's like okay, that was pretty much borderline savanna if it wasn't savanna. Yeah. And so that we know is great for songbirds, right? So so they're foraging on all these species that have this this soft mass dropping depositing. Um but so, so that fills in all the gaps, right? Yeah. And, and and now we've got a forest full of these types of species that we talked about that birds are going to forage on a lot. Mulberry, persimmon, hackberries, elms, and uh, what was the other one? Cherry. Cher- I said oh, yeah. cherry. Um, so we know that that's going to probably... And you probably throw cedar in there because it's oh, yeah, soft cedar. Yeah, so, so there's a lot there. But but what's crazy now mm. is is now... I can see that in the understory of some of these larger trees and in close proximity. So that's like first first aggression post 
Savannah. And now the fact that there's cedars mm-hmm. growing, birds are roosting there and foraging in there. Guess what else is now directly underneath of those cedars? Invasives. Bush honeysuckle. Bush honeysuckle, a lot of them which, all over. Which is another, another berry. Another berry. And so it's like, this is like a multi-step progression of how songbirds have been foraging on these soft mass species, depositing and, seed, and, and not no just disturbance. That. What and is, oh, here what we is are. the common roost tree for birds in Abs- the winter? Cedar. Cedar. What is a species that has berries cedar during the winter when they roost honeysuckle. in se- Cedar. Hackberry. Bush honeysuckle. Winter creeper, yep. yep. Um, Oriental bittersweet, absolutely. There's, and there's no, there is absolutely, in my opinion, th- it is such a strong connection correlation there. Um, and how that is, that is a very large reason why. I think of it like this: when I looked at your aerial, because mine wasn't that vastly different, right? And the, the the differences that were that were apparent in my farm in my area neighborhood was man-made differences. Right, it wasn't right. uh, natural disturbance different yep. like yours. What was the main thing? Okay, so that was 1955 to, you know, we're, we're roughly looking at 70 years yep. in, that, in that difference. 70 years didn't change that much. Mm-hmm. You know, how long have, have we been here? How long has Earth been here? When did God put that? When did he make that? When were those, those days that he made that? Yeah. Like, and then now, <clears throat> you know, that's widely debated. You think about how much it's changed from then, and, and it take take the seventy years from from today to nineteen fifties, then go seventy from nineteen fifty, go back to eighteen eighty. Yeah. Oh yeah. How much had it changed? Well, I don't I th- think it changed as much. In my belief, it didn't change as much from let's just say seventeen hundred to nineteen hundred, two hundred years. Yeah. I bet it didn't change as much then as it has from nineteen fifty five to two thousand twenty one. Just due to urbanization, due to people moving in, and I think it's number one thing, <clears throat> and I want to tie that in before you jump, disrupting the disturbance yeah. and the fire regime. Yep. Of, <clears throat> there was way more fire that naturally occurred, set by Native Americans, pioneers, whoever yep. set these fires. Fires got out. That's the number one thing, in my opinion, to fight back the overgrowth of berry species like bush honeysuckle, mm-hmm. uh, even eastern red cedar, hackberry, mm-hmm. because none of those species can take fire nope. like the oaks can. And guess and, what? And that's where it's just like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, you, could fix, you could fix so much of this just by burning. Now, well, some of it's going to take some chainsaw work and then burning. And that's absolutely what's happening. And, and I saw that picture, and I'm, I'm looking at it. And I'm like, okay, it was grazed underneath of like that savanna, but yeah. but I'm looking at it and saying, that's my goal. Like that's what I want. That's what I'm gonna go in and just willy nilly just cut, cut, yeah. cut, and burn, burn, burn. And it's gonna get back to that because those trees are are still there. Yeah, 1950. That's only a 70 year old tree. <clears throat> it's excuse me. That's only 70 years since that that picture. That like there those a lot of those trees are still there. Some have been harvested. I, I see stumps of some larger trees. Yeah, but but. But there are still remnants of those exact same trees from that aerial. And yeah. I'm like, that's the goal that I'm shooting for. Uh-huh. And it's going to take probably, you know, several fires and multiple thinnings to get there. Mm-hmm. But why not? Yeah. Why not get it back? And 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 I'm going to be removing so many bad species and making way for well, good species. At the end of the day, it's going to be very 
just because of the composition of what is growing there, it's going to be very heavy, hard and soft mast oriented. Not that mm-hmm. I don't, I dislike or think that there's <clears throat> no place for other tree species, but based on what's there and the yeah. the condition, that's pretty much what's going to be left. Wh- where would mulberry, hackberry, <clears throat> what was it, cherry? Yeah, where would they grow? Where Where are we okay? In places that don't get burned regularly, riparian Correct. areas, yep. north, north slopes, slopes, east slopes, coolies on those slopes where yep. moisture is so abundant that a fire can't really damage them. Correct. That's where they were supposed to be. That's where yeah. they're they're but, very common. But, I had, I, but I, yet I they s- spread all over the hillsides. There's sycamores on west-facing slopes high on a ridge. It's like that, 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 you're that not irritates here. me you're, when you're, I see it all the time. We found them on our glade when we were doing yeah. our glade restaurant. It's just like... This is not <sighs> your place, dude. Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. So there's a lot of species that are just, um, it's not that we hate them or don't feel that there's value there. It's just you're out of place. So at that point, you're gone. Yeah. Like you're just, sorry. sorry you, you can't move yourself, so I'm going to move you. Get out of yeah. the way. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, and I think, you know, boy, we really went on a forestry rant there. But well, that's where this, you know. I think I had a d- d- These purpose. topics with <clears throat> with uh, Marcus Lashley. um we're very just like okay, you know, there's an importance there. There's there's a reason that we need to talk about the red oaks and that importance because yeah. so much we've we've lusted after the white oak. Yeah. Oh yeah. That that now we're like okay, let's let's tone it back and really kind of look big picture. And, and if that's one <coughs> thing I could say to people that are listening to this podcast each and every week is, we're really just trying to get people to see big picture. It's not whitetail deer. And targeting those. It, it's much bigger. And if you want to be really good at targeting the white-tailed deer, you need to think bigger picture. Y- yeah. You, you've been too narrow-focused for too long that you've missed the big picture. And so we got to go back to the big picture and all that information that you already learned from the narrow point of view. Uh, once you have the big picture, apply it there, and you're going to kill the biggest deer. Yep. Like, like don't worry about that. Just, just think big scale. But... But at the same time, Adam, big scale is pretty simple. Yeah, it big, is. It's 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 a complex world, but we can boil it down to to simplest sim, simple, to repeatable, intentional actions, and and you're going to have results. Yeah, and that's what's in, that's what's encouraging. I think yep. and should be to everyone else out there uh, listening and applying this stuff. So, no doubt. I enjoyed it. I thought oh, it was yeah. good, and I know we're going to have him back on soon. Totally. So. Totally. Anyway, guys, hopefully you enjoyed this week's podcast. You, you probably now are aware that we just basically did two parts. We interviewed him, we had our <coughs> discussion, and then now we broke it down once we stepped back and thought about it more and said, okay, how does this really apply to you as a landowner? So, yep. Anyway, guys, we appreciate it. We'll catch you next week. See ya. <laughs>